are continuing our focus in this class 11 in the, uh, under the theme Understanding God's Righteousness. Uh, we're continuing our focus on the issues of faith and works, and particularly how to balance these required responses to the second and third of the four calling stages of our Creator. Faith is demonstrated in that second calling, and works constitute the response to that third calling, God's calling to performance. These first three callings are optional. The call to enlightenment, the call to commitment, and then the call to performance. The fourth calling is not optional. The fourth calling is to the judgment of Christ, and that will not be optional at all, but mandatory, no matter whether one is dead or alive. These four progressive callings that are demonstrated in so many ways in Scripture, and particularly in the day and night rituals of the First Kingdom Age, they fit perfectly into a scriptural framework of a pattern of three within a pattern of four that absolutely saturates the Word of God, issuing originally from the memorial name of God, with its four letters, but only three consonants, Y-H-W-H, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, and then seen in so many other places, such as the four salvation events of Christ, and then the first set of saints in the seventh millennium, and then, the, then thirdly, the second set of saints in the eighth millennium, and then uh, the complete illumination of death, thereby including all of creation into that perfect harmony with the Creator. And we'll, we'll have more to, to add to this extensive scriptural pattern within a salvation shadow context, uh, this list, in, in a few minutes. That mandatory fourth calling to judgment will focus on our works, which qualify as the demonstrations of our faith. We're warned about this endlessly. In fact, one of the last warnings from Jesus Christ emphasizes this exact issue. In Revelation 22, uh, Jesus says to us, uh, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Our reward will be based on what our works will have demonstrated. Yes, the divine equation is certainly that works cannot save us exclusively, but our actual judgment will focus on what we've done right, what we've done wrong, and what we haven't done that should have been done, including every idle word we've ever spoken in Matthew 12. Jesus says, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Christadelphians will be justified or condemned forever on the basis of our words. We better be careful what we say, because those words will be considered again at our judgment. Considering our deeds and our works constitute the structure of judgment, um, we have this further statement by Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, uh, where he says, uh, right after a, a declaration of the immortalization process in the first few verses of the, of the chapter, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, 
whether it be good or bad. Our judgment will not be to simply determine if we did or did not have faith, but what we did with that faith. Did our actions and words validate or contradict the terms of our Creator's righteousness? The Apostle Paul's statement that immediately follows that declaration of the judgment precedent being the things that we've done is particularly bracing. Paul then adds, knowing the terror of the Lord, I'm sorry, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul expresses the possibility of his own potential rejection at Christ's judgment seat as being terrifying and motivating him to an energetic level of service. What a very different perspective from the all-too-common presumption in our community today that we have no reason whatsoever to be afraid of God's possible rejection, and that many today take our perspective salvation for granted in our community. This basis for divine judgment being our works and deeds is emphasized in that second judgment of those accountable to Christ's judgment as well, in the, in the eighth millennium, after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. We see the terms presented in chapter 20, picking up at verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The, this uh, dependence of works in addition to faith for salvation presents a bit of an odd twist. As we know perfectly that we cannot be saved on the basis of works alone. Yet we're repeatedly warned that it's going to be determined whether we live forever or die forever on the basis of our works and words, not simply our professed faith. But the basic challenge in correctly understanding the terms of our Creator's rightness is almost, almost always the same issue. It is the problem of oversimplification. Reducing comprehensive answers into either-or questions. Uh, the natural and comfortable serpent thought process, what we call our instinctive thought process, is based on preferring simplicity over complexity. Despite our incapacity to earn salvation, those works and words are what will qualify us for the unearned gift of imputed righteousness, that missing perfect righteousness that our Savior exclusively demonstrated his entire life. There is no grace or imputed righteousness offered on the basis of simply a professed faith. If our faith is not active and developing that divinely required fruitfulness, then our faith is a dead faith. James tells us in chapter 2, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, 
notwithstanding you give him not those things which are needful for the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yet a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then the, uh, he adds the comment in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit or the breath is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Both faith and works are necessary for salvation, despite the fact that our works will never be enough. Without those active expressions of our faith, without that expected, divinely expected, fruitfulness, our potential salvation is utterly impossible. Now let's address what value our works and words actually offer to God. He isn't going to be any more or any less with or without our faithful service. Our service is not like employment where an employer expects a return on investment, and that employer is personally benefited by our services. Our God created all things. There's nothing we can give him that he doesn't already have, with one exception, our voluntary love. But it must be an intense love, not a casual or shallow or convenient love. The reason we have such a challenging situation in relation to the offer of salvation, with our default serpent thought process issuing from our hearts, prompting those uninvited temptations and those self-worshipping distortions concerning the features of God's righteousness, with all the societal contradictions to our Creator's righteousness that requires sacrificial distancing. That can certainly cost us. And with that focus on absolute truth that is so humbling, the, re the reason is that the reward is so great. Therefore, the love God seeks must also be great. This is why that first and greatest commandment requires the greatest of all loves to love God, Yahweh our Elohim, he who shall be our mighty ones with all our heart and all our life and all our strength. It is this distinction of intensity of service that qualified the bought and paid for slave for, greater divine, for a greater divine relationship and access than merely the hired help in both the patriarchal age and the First Kingdom Age. Now, this distinction was evident in certain requirements and benefits offered by God. While hired servants were not commanded to be circumcised, slaves were required to be circumcised with that mark of God's covenant in their body. This same relationship distinction was true for Passover participation in uh, Genesis 17, of course, we, we see the, uh, the application for circumcision. Uh, God tells Abraham, He that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. 
And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We also read this distinction in uh, Exodus 12, concerning Passover participation. The Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. So God makes this distinction between a slave and a hired servant in both the circumcision ritual and Passover participation. That difference, that inclusion for the slave, but exclusion for the hired servant, is quantified by the degree and extent of service between those two servant categories. It is the slave with that 100% service relationship that enjoys the greater divine status in both circumcision and Passover participations. I, I think this is why the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe his own servant status to Jesus Christ is the Greek word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, which indicates a bought and paid for slave and not just a temporary hired servant. It is that intensity of service works that distinguished between the slave and the hired servant that highlights the same intensity distinction in that first and great love commandment, not to hold back, but to provide God a love that is above all other loves. As Paul tells us, we have been bought with a price. And that purchasing medium was the blood of Christ. Now, now let's put this value that God seeks for himself in our salvation uh, offer framework into the context of our covenant signature ritual frame of reference we've been looking at, uh, we've been considering, to un in order to understand how to balance faith and works. Now, the divinely pointed signature ritual of the Mosaic Covenant of Works was Sabbath observance. Disrespecting Sabbath observance imposed a death sentence. <laughs> that certainly emphasizes the expected value God wanted from the proper performance of that ritual, which was resting from our works, in that covenant of works, but actually a particular category of works, as priests had to work on the Sabbath. As Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees who were accusing his disciples of Sabbath violations. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says uh, to the uh, accusing Pharisees, Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? It was a Sabbath when all the labors focused on benefiting themselves were inappropriate, but labors demonstrating the terms of God's righteousness were not inappropriate, including how Christ healed the diseased, the blind, the crippled, so often on Sabbath days. 
those Sabbath healings perfectly demonstrated the principle of resting from one's labors. But the leaders of the enlightened community in that generation objected to the supposed contradiction to the technicality of performing any work on a Sabbath. They didn't distinguish. They didn't think deeply. They reacted instinctively. So again, how was God actually benefited by the faithful observation of that signature ritual of that covenant of works? When we reviewed this covenant signature ritual status of Sabbath observance, we heard two separate foundational motivation declarations, the declarations of purpose for Sabbath observance. One reason was the rest uh, of the, uh, that the entire enlightened community was given by God through saving them from slavery to the Egyptians. In uh, Deuteronomy 5, as, as Moses is recounting the Ten Commandments on that last day of his life, um, we read in verse 15, and, re- and as he's reviewing the Sabbath law, and remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, slaves, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence with a mighty hand and by stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So one foundational reason for Sabbath observance was to demonstrate that resting principle seen in how God freed the enlightened community from that harsh slavery under their Egyptian masters, how he gave them their rest. The other foundational reason that God gave for instituting this signature ritual for the Mosaic Covenant of Works was related to a rest for God himself. In Exodus 31, uh, we read that we have read before, read again, wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign, again, a, a token be sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So we have these two foundational reasons for the Sabbath observance ritual. A rest for the enlightened community and a rest for God. This rest theme is a shadow of the offer of salvation, uh, offer of salvation as well. <laughs> We're all slaves in one way or another. We are shackled to that default heart-generated thought process that is a basic feature of our sin-cursed nature. This is that lust feature, that uh, Diablo's feature that Paul explains is why the process of corruption, the scientific feature of corruption, currently burdens our natural order our sin-cursed order. And this is how Paul describes the transition demonstrated in baptism as abandoning our servant status, uh, servant of sin status, and becoming the servant of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 6 is that same Greek word, doulos, that signifies a bought and paid for slave. We are born into slavery, to sin. We can choose 
the only other possible master, the Son of God, but the procedure includes our death, that ritual death and resurrection simulation of baptism. And then our loyalty shifts from sin to the Son of God, our prospective Savior. This is our promised rest, that escape from corruption, that salvation that is shadowed in the Sabbath observance signature ritual of the Mosaic Covenant of Works. But what about God's rest? As we noted, one of the foundational reasons God gave for instituting Sabbath observance was that he rested on the seventh day in the creation week. This is a rather odd expression. God resting? He certainly stopped his creating, creating activities after six days, but it doesn't say he just stopped. God's testimony is that God rested and was actually refreshed. At first, this seems rather strange, because God does not need to rest, at least not in the context that we understand. His energies are limitless. He doesn't need to sleep or take a nap like we do. So what is this rest that is identified with the seventh day, and how does the salvation equation that we hope to participate in offer any real resting value to God? We can easily understand the resting feature of the Millennial Kingdom, the rest from sin and the physical effects of sin in that Sabbath Kingdom, that seventh millennium since creation, that seventh divine day, mirroring the seventh day of the creation week. We reviewed how the serpent, the dragon, Satan, and Diabolos, those four sin icons, are chained in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, resulting in a great rest from the physical effects of sin, with the dramatic extension of mortal life, and all wars ending, unprecedented increases in agricultural productivity with less work, and with the introduction of new agricultural species, and a reduction in disease and danger, even including biological changes in formerly dangerous animals. There's certainly a slight rest advantage to God in this Sabbath kingdom framework, but it, it seems more like simply a reducing of the aggravation that God suffers from the presence and, and prevalence of sin, which again is defined as the absence of his righteousness. But there's more to this rest principle that offers significant value to our Heavenly Father. God has defined for us the true place of his rest. He has defined the heavenly substance casting the earthly shadows of those four divine sanctuaries, the four temples of the tabernacle made by Moses, which is referred to as a temple more than once in Scripture, the temple built by Solomon, the post-captivity temple, and the future temple Jesus will construct at Jerusalem. Again, paralleling those four 
letters in the name of God, Y-H-W-H, demonstrating that same pattern of three within a pattern of four, if we've noted in the past, as we've previously noted, there are four Hebrew consonants in God's memorial name, but there are only three separate letters of Y-H and W-H being duplicated. Similarly, there will have been four divine sanctuaries, but one was mobile, and three will have been immobile structures. One was built and commissioned at Sinai, but the other three at Jerusalem, displaying that same doubled pattern of three within a pattern of four that appears so frequently throughout Scripture in a salvation frame of reference. That doubled pattern of three within a pattern of four is clearly demonstrated in the eight people saved on Noah's Ark, with one father and three sons in one gender, and then doubled with one mother and three daughter-in-laws of the other gender. Now, this is also true of the heaven and earth covenant between God and Abram, with two rows of four components, with each parallel row uh, consisting of four sacrificial components having three cleaved beasts of the earth and one whole fowl of heaven. This doubled pattern of three within a pattern of four can also be seen in the four components placed into the Golden Ark of the Covenant, where those three compo uh, components were deposited at three different times, with the golden manna first, then the two stones of the covenant, and then the high priest rod. And then the, that rod displaying those four stages of agricultural maturity, because as the text um, reads, um, and behold, the rod of Aaron, of the house of Levi, was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. We hear of two budding stages, just like two H's in the memorial name of God, therefore indicating an initial budding and then fully formed buds and then blossoms and then ripe almonds. Uh, that second pattern through three within a pattern of four. Uh, similar to the four priesthood ages, those four developing stages or dispensations in the Creator's plan, where the second and the fourth stages each qualify as the kingdom of God, but still have distinct, uh, significant distinctions besides chronology, uh, because they are separated by the ecclesial age. There is a powerful but subtle emphasis offered to validate the significance of these four sanctuaries these four temples of God. The more obvious divine emphasis is related to the access restrictions for these temples. While the enlightened community could enter the courtyard, only, only priests could enter the holy chamber, and only the high priest could enter the most holy chamber, and only on, on one day each year, and only three times on threat of death. But these sanctuaries are still only earthly shadows of heavenly substance casting those shadows. The real question is what is that three-dimensional heavenly substance casting those two-dimensional shadows? So let's look at the explanation God offers concerning the true nature of the rest that he seeks, the substance casting these shadows of these temples. 
Immediately after, Isaiah shares a very detailed description of the rest to be enjoyed in the Millennial Kingdom, what he calls a new heaven, a new earth. We hear God explaining this rest value that he seeks in chapter 66, very beginning. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all these things has mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. So God asks, where is the place of his rest? He even asks, where's the house that you build unto me? <laughs> the temple that Solomon built was still standing at that time. But this was not a geographical question or, or a question of existence. It was a question about adequacy. How can a mere building constructed by men from materials God created actually contain him, or offer him a place of rest. But then God provides the answer for that place of his rest. The man who is poor, of a contrite spirit, and trembles at his word. That is the place of God's rest. That is the substance casting the shadows of those four sanctuaries. The rest God seeks, hinted at in that seventh day of the week, uh, creation week, is provided by the faithful who have circumcised their naturally pompous and self-worshipping heart, developed a contrite, broken spirit before God and those that absolutely tremble at his words. That is certainly not a description of mankind, or even the majority of the enlightened community at any time in the history of the world, including this last generation of the ecclesial age. God offers a validation of this same expression through Isaiah, a few chapters back in chapter 57. He says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. With him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite one. God, God cannot be contained by wood and metal buildings. He dwells in the high and holy place, but also within that faithful, enlightened person, person whose serpent heart has been crushed, and he will revive that heart of the truly contrite, brokenhearted, the ones among the enlightened community who truly tremble at his words. Like Jesus, we can be the substance casting the shadows of those sanctuaries. We can give 
God the rest he seeks. We can give God the one thing he cannot make without us. He does not want robots or computerized servants that can only perform what they've been designed to perform, incapable of love, no free will, no capacity to choose to love God, especially with the further challenge of overcoming the default serpent thought pattern of self-worship that we're all born with. We can give the creator of the universe what he cannot make for himself. That place of rest qualified as a loving gift of devotion and complete trust. Moses expressed this same thought in this way in, in what's called the Song of Moses, uh, presented right, right after the enlightened community was saved and their enemies destroyed in the Red Sea. Uh, in Exodus, uh, uh, Mo Moses sings, um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, the Lord is my strength and song, and he is become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him and habitation. This is what we're doing for the creator and sustainer of the universe. We are preparing ourselves to be habitations, places of rest for the God we love and know. Jesus expresses this same understanding in some of the last words that he spoke to his disciples as, uh, as they ate the Passover on the evening of the 14th day. Uh, of that first month, the day that he died. In John 14, we read, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Sadly, most often these verses are attempted to be explained from a defensive perspective, as opposed to simply explaining what Jesus is really saying, as opposed to what he can't be saying. Jesus explains he'll be leaving his disciples and going to his father's house. While there, he will prepare what is poorly translated as mansions, simply, simply means abiding places, he prepares these abiding places for the truly faithful. But he makes it clear we do not travel to him to receive those abiding places. He returns to us, and when he does, he will take the faithful to himself that they can be where he is, meaning a change in nature, not simply a geographical location. In verse 23 of the same chapter, we see the same expression using the same Greek word that was so poorly translated as mansions. Uh, drop it down to verse 22. Uh, we read the question and the answer. Judas saith unto, unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he'll keep my words, and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode mansion, M-O-N-E, we will make our abode with him. 
uh, that, that Greek word. Abode is, is translated from that same Greek word, M-O-N-E, that was translated as mansions in verse 2. And the condition is loving obedience. The benefit is becoming a place of residence for God and Christ. That habitation that Moses declared he would prepare for God. And that temple-like place of rest Isaiah referenced. Once again, we're told that God and Christ will come to us for this reward and with this reward. We don't go to them, as with the divinely insulting, paganized Christian delusion of our immortal consciousness going to heaven when we die. Paul refers to this same theme of these abiding places that Jesus prepares for, for those who love him and his Father in heaven that will be brought to us. As we mentioned before in 2 Corinthians 5, when we noted um, Paul being terrified of the possibility that he might be denied salvation. Uh, in the first few verses of that chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, we read, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, if our bodies died and dissolved, we have a building of God and house and abiding place and mansion not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Referring back, of course, to Eve. Uh, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, in other words, we don't want to die, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Paul is describing the promise and the process of salvation, immortalization, atonement. This is a, a very, a very clear from that concluding statement, mortal life being swallowed up, covered up uh, by another category of life that qualifies as a type of tabernacle and a covering of shameful nakedness. Our current earthly tabernacle, our body, will dissolve or die, but our confidence is that we have another tabernacle, a mansion, an abiding place, that Jesus promised he would prepare in heaven and bring back with him for us when he returns to take us unto himself, that we can be as him, as him, that our eternal an undissolvable tabernacle from heaven will cover us when earth, when heavenly blends with earthly in our bodies and with eternal life swallowing up, encompassing, covering mortal life. It, it is unfortunate when brethren in our community promote the misconception that atonement has nothing to do with the concept of the covering of immortality as has been promoted repeatedly in books and uh, Bible school presentations and study weekend presentations by oddly respected brethren in our community. And, and those presentations and books suffering very few challenges. But our point in this issue of qualifying as a habitation for God, a place of rest, this Sabbath ritual substance, the one thing 
that we can offer God that he cannot make without our assistance that has to be developed with both faith and faith-validating works, deeds, and words. The same concept is described slightly differently by Paul to the Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 3, um, where Paul says, uh, for our conversation, poor translation, polichima in the Greek, but our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to even to subdue all things unto himself. That, that Greek word translated conversation is actually polituma, which indicates a political affiliation, a uh, political identification. It's like a, a, a residence often indicates a political national affiliation. So those abiding places, those tabernacles made without hands uh, that Jesus has prepared in heaven for the truly faithful serve as that political identification, uh, the heavenly kingdom that Jesus will bring and establish on the earth. This is how I uh, personally explain to those who challenge me about not being a registered voter. I explain that my first citizenship is not the United States, that while I am a citizen of the USA, it is not my primary citizenship. Um, Paul defines that heavenly citizenship as being that same change in nature that he described as being that tabernacle made without hands in heaven that covers the shame of our nakedness, and also how Jesus defined those abiding places those mansions that he would bring back with him for the faithful when he returned and he is, and his father would make their abode in those who truly loved them. Our reward is to become the places of rest for the God we love. And that is God's reward as well. This oneness, this harmony, this peace between earth and heaven, this rest for both God and man is afforded on the basis of a powerful love, a love that is proven by our right works and our right words. And if we actually tremble at God's words, it is the intensity of our loving service, our works, that qualifies us for the blessing of this eternal rest. If our service is lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, as Jesus describes our Laodicean stage, if we only demonstrate a form of godliness, but not I the power thereof, as Paul also prophesied about our exact last generation of the ecclesial age, why would we even need a rest if there's been so little energy expended in the service of God? Doesn't love in and of itself offer a rest feature? As a child, my parents made me feel safe. The arms of a loving mother can often quickly calm a troubled baby toddler. There is a great comfort in knowing 
someone truly loves you. The confidence of that love can act like a cocoon for development, the freedom to develop, and as a refuge when our guard may be lowered. Love provides a degree of rest. God wants to be loved. But he's not interested in a fallow, a a shallow, fake love, but a love demonstrating intensity, loyalty, respect. Therefore, the understanding and behavioral standards he demands to enjoy the eternal benefit of that promised rest must demonstrate a significant intensity. So, what does it mean to tremble at God's words? Do we, do we sometimes involuntarily shudder when we read our Bibles, physically affected by the beauty and the synergistic power being unveiled in the understanding of those words? Do we sometimes break down in tears while doing our daily readings? Crushed or amazed by the testimony being presented. <laughs> Words we may have read 50 times before. We need to be careful. We are not among those within the enlightened community who dismiss this call for trembling at God's words, insisting that there's no reason to fear God or to fear his possible disappointment in us. And we can supposedly offer nothing more than a minimal reverential respect, presuming that our salvation is easy and effortless and simple and pretty much assured, no matter how one's behavior or understandings may contradict the terms of our Creator's righteousness. That does not sound like someone trembling at God's words. It is the intensity of our service to God and Christ, that trembling nature of our service that parallels that slave-like frame of reference and the divine requirement for blemishless altar offerings and the variable nature of those three great love commandments to love God with everything we have, all our life, all our heart, all our mind, and then to love our brothers and sisters more than we love ourselves but less than God, and then to love our neighbor but only necessary to the degree that we love ourselves which is less than the love for the brotherhood and far, far less than the required love for God. As we've noted, the Sabbath observance ritual focusing on rest was appointed as the signature ritual of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant of works. Disrespecting the resting limitations, noncompliance, imposed a death sentence. This rest feature in the plan of our Creator is a major motivating factor in His unfolding plan. The relationship between works and rest should be recognized in this signature ritual appointment for this particular everlasting covenant. So we have faith and we have works. Both are absolutely required for any realistic hope 
to participate in the blessing of an eternal relationship with God, <clears throat> but faith is greater than works and compensates for the shortcomings of imperfect works. No matter how intense and energetic our works, our proof of our love may be. In our next class, we're going to consider the challenging thought process we face after coming to a knowledge of the truth, which is really a correct understanding of the terms of God's rightness. There are four separate divinely imposed paradigms, thought structures, in God's plan. We are currently in the second and the most challenging of those paradigm stages, and about to enter the third of the four with the introduction of the Millennial Kingdom, when everything is going to change yet again.